I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching from myself and Levi Warren is part three in our Advent series, Always Winter, Never Christmas. Earlier this week, uh, my two-year-old son Arlo got sick. Uh, If you're a parent this time of year, that's about to happen to you if it hasn't already. Uh, This kind of thing happens to kids, especially the little ones, because their little bodies haven't gathered up decades of antibodies like mine has, so the smallest cold topples them. So his eyes were all puffy and glassy looking, you know, and he'd groan and he'd nuzzle into my chest and say, I'm sad, Dada, I'm sad, because he doesn't, yeah, I know, (laughs) he doesn't have the words to describe this thing that's happening to him. He doesn't know how to say, I'm sick, or my head hurts, or that kind of thing, so We did the handful of things that one can do to combat the thing. We fed him the liquid ibuprofen from one of those little plastic syringes. We put our little humidifier in his room. We prayed for him all throughout the day. The kids would lay hands on him and pray for him. We knew it's not really a big deal. We knew he'd recover in a few days, and that was reason enough for gratitude. Um, From some sicknesses, we realized one does not recover. And like I said, it's not a huge deal in the big scheme of things, your two-year-old getting a virus from which they'll quickly bounce back. But any half-decent parent will tell you it's pretty heartbreaking to see a little two-year-old be sick, especially when you love them a lot. I'm sad, Dad. I'm sad. I I freaking hate it. hate that thing. And uh, Abby and me, we were getting up all night, you know, because he wakes up when he's sick, and we'd soothe him, and we'd team up to administer the meds, and we'd take turns rocking him, basically anything we could do to ease the burden of this brief little sickness. My uh, 10-year-old son, Beck, was looking at Arlo, and then he started crying. He said, I just feel so bad for Loey. Um, well, like I said, not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things, but no one, my point is that no one in our house could stand to watch this little guy suffer, even in this little insignificant way. We realize not everyone is like that. A few weeks ago, uh, a Clark County jury convicted a pair of adoptive parents of homicide by abuse and murder after they deliberately starved their 15-year-old son to death. And one juror, when interviewed by the Columbian after the trial, said, and this is a quote from the newspaper, I've always heard about really awful things happening around the world, but this is the first time I was really confronted with it. And I thought about that quote a lot. That's the way the world's awfulness often goes, out there in the ether until it comes creeping into our tidy little lives in one way or another. Arlo got better a couple days later. Before he did, I remember thinking, if I could take his discomfort from him and take it upon myself, I would do that. Easy for me to say because it wasn't so bad and it was over fast. But I think that's the way most people feel when someone they love suffers helplessly. If they could do something to end that suffering, they would gladly do it, even at their own self-sacrificial inconvenience. But then there are other people in the world who go out of their way to make other people suffer, to make a child suffer, to prolong a child's suffering, and who, according to all accounts, feel no remorse aside from the inconvenience of having been caught and held responsible for their evil. I've always heard about really awful things happening around the world. This is the first time I was really confronted with it. We like to think of stories like that one as rare or unique, but this kind of thing happens all over the world. Every day of the long calendar year, the unimaginable evil that unfolded right here in Vancouver is one terrible example. I've read about 
other incidents around the world, some of them long ago, others very recent this year, this month, that somehow make that awful story in Clark County seem tame by comparison. But we figure, understandably, well, that represents the awful underbelly of a particularly awful humanity. And that's not all wrong. But whatever you think about these people and what they do, they're here. They're in the world. They're in our town, our city. They're right up the road. And maybe, we figure, it's out there, that seedy underbelly. And we have our own little lives, relatively tidy by comparison. And these bad guys, they tend to get what's coming to them. Those adoptive parents, they're going to jail. But tell that to the boy that they tortured and killed. No one came to save him. In fact, there were so many opportunities for someone to intervene, and no one did. That's our world. Just up the road, the child was suffering for a long time, and that evil eventually ended his life. And that kind of thing is happening everywhere all the time. Now, of course, the socio-political narrative, the social media outrage narrative, is also, well, evil is out there. And it goes like this. It's on the other side. It's in the people who don't think like us. It's in the people who don't live like us. It's in the people who don't vote like us. Evil is what happens if our side isn't in power. Evil is on Twitter, or evil is a canceled celebrity, or evil is a politician or a government. And those things could be true. They can be true. But the reality is that evil is no matter what. All over the world, across the long timeline of humanity, whoever was in power, whatever governments were at peace or at war, a profound, cancerous, incurable evil twists deep into the human story, and we have been helpless to do anything about it. Even if everyone bowed to the word police, and even, even if your person got elected, and even if that war ends, and even if that bill passes, none of those things would have stopped that boy from being tortured to death right here in Vancouver. Someone other than us is going to have to do something about this awful mess that is humanity, and that is the story of Advent. Eric Mar uh, Maria remarks, masterful 1929 novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, is one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, it's horrifying, heartbreaking, and beautifully moving all at once. And it's a story that follows uh, this young German soldier, uh, Paul Baumer, as he experiences the gut-wrenching realities of World War I. At first, Paul and his friends, uh, they're drawn to enlist in the German army by this idea of glory and pride. And prompted by nationalism and the patriotic speeches of their school teacher, they volunteer and are eventually sent to the front lines of battle. But far from achieving for him a sense of glory, the war quickly confirms to Paul both the, the brokenness of his faceless enemy as well as his own brokenness, which is exposed in all its hideousness. The senseless nature of man at war with man is revealed and examined by remark to piercing effect in a one particularly memorable scene. Uh, trapped in a shell hole and pinned down by enemy fire, Paul suddenly finds himself engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with a French soldier who stumbles into his hiding spot. Without hesitation, Paul madly plunges his knife into the foreign body. And it's the first time that he's experienced the terror and the intimacy of close quarters fighting. 
What follows is hours and hours of agony as Paul, still trapped in this shell hole, listens to this other man, this man that he's just stabbed, slowly die. And the ragged breathing and gasping of the dying man is torture to Paul as he thinks about the reality of what he's done until the silence begins. The gurgling stops and Paul knows that the other soldier has died. The finality of his actions sets in and the silence becomes even more torturous than the preceding death rattle. Then Paul says, the silence spreads. I talk and must talk. So I speak to him and say to him, comrade, I did not want to kill you. If you jumped in here again, I would not do it if you would be sensible too. But you were only an idea to me before, an abstraction that lived in my mind and called forth its appropriate response. It was that abstraction I stabbed. But now for the first time, I see you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now I see your wife and your face and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. Why do they never tell us that you are poor devils like us, that your mothers are just as anxious as ours, and that we have the same fear of death and the same dying and the same agony? Forgive me, comrade. How could you be my enemy? If we threw away these rifles and this uniform, you could be my brother, just like Kat and Albert. Take 20 years of my life, comrade, and stand up. Take more, for I do not know what I can even attempt to do with it now. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you were overwhelmed by your own brokenness, saying, take my life. I do not know what I can even attempt to do with it now. Sometimes that overwhelming sense of brokenness can lead us to lose all hope. Or sometimes the overwhelming nature of our brokenness becomes too much to face, to the point that we deny its very existence. Have you allowed yourself to be blind to your own brokenness? To turn away from the truth and deny what's right in front of your face? It's often easier to look out into the world and say, the brokenness is out there. I'm all right. It's the world. It's others that are bent and broken, turned away from God. The brokenness of others, we think, far outstrips our own. And it's like the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18, he said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Facing the reality of the world's brokenness, I would argue, is important, but if we're not careful, it can harden our own hearts to the reality that we too need to be rescued from our brokenness. Because facing our own brokenness can be scary and difficult, but it doesn't have to leave us trapped in a shell hole with the stiffening corpse of our horrifying sin. Instead, facing our brokenness allows the light of Jesus and the mercy of God to wash over the darkness of the creator of our lives. We become open to the reality of Advent, 
Jesus stepping into our world of brokenness, taking on flesh to be Emmanuel, or God with us. Advent is the outstretched arm of God that grabs hold of us, pulls us up and over that ragged edge of blasted earth, out of the shell hole of our own despair. And in doing so, God shines a light of hope on our brokenness and says, I can take care of that. One of uh, tonight's Advent readings, the one that Levi actually read just a few minutes ago, comes from this climactic finale section of the book of Isaiah. It's a section in which uh, the servants of the coming king finally inherit God's long-promised kingdom. Chapter 61 is actually part of a collection of these really beautiful poems that together announce the good news of God's kingdom to the poor. And these poems compile and reaffirm all the promises made throughout this prophetic collection of writings we call Isaiah that one day God's justice and mercy and blessing will flow like rivers in the desert, the desert being the world parched by evil, desperately in need of God's restorative healing. And what's fascinating is that these poems are sandwiched on both sides by other poems that acknowledge the awful state of ruin to which the world has devolved. And those poems, uh, at least some of them, start the way one might expect. Uh, we read, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongues mutter wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. In other words, you are to blame. They are to blame. But then, if you keep reading, suddenly there's a twist, and the language of the poem suddenly shifts. And the author writes, So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none for deliverance, but it's far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our own God, inciting revolt and depression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. It goes from it's you, it's them, to it's us. Humanity itself is broken, and this means that all of us are guilty of contributing to this great big mess. Yes, but it also means that all of us are in desperate need of saving because all of us have become victimizers and all of us have been victimized by evil. And you know this already. We tend to vary in our willingness to acknowledge our own shortcomings and in our ability to handle that acknowledgement. If we can pull it off, some of us would prefer to imagine ourselves as at least not as bad as someone else 
Whatever the world's problems might be, we know where to localize the blame, and it certainly isn't on us. We're doing everything right. We're on the right side of history, whatever it might be. It's somebody else. And we'll be reminded of this tendency at Christmas time. at least a lot of us will, when we reluctantly share time and space among extended family members with wacky theology or backwards political opinions and conspiracy theories, and we'll think of ourselves as at least better than those guys. Abby and I have this running gag when either of us, this is a true story, when either of us notices that a conversation has veered toward gossip and we catch ourselves speaking of other people without grace or compassion, one of us will interrupt ourselves and say, man, aren't we so much better than everybody else? Thank God we're not like these other people we're talking about. Now, of course, this is entirely sarcastic. We are, in essence, acknowledging how foolish our conversation has become how foolish it is to judge others by mocking ourselves, and that shuts the gossip down. But some of us wouldn't dream of glossing over our not-so-greatness. In fact, we're practically undone by it. And some of us tend to wallow in the overwhelming reality of our indiscretions and inadequacies, and we hate ourselves for them. But the scandal of Advent bypasses self-righteousness and self-hating despair, but only after we find pain and hope together in the same place. Yes, we have blown it, we need saving, and we are helpless to save ourselves. So, God is coming to save us. Isaiah 61 is this electrifying and exciting declaration of hope for the people of God, a people experiencing their own long season of Advent waiting, waiting in the darkness for a Messiah, a king to come bring justice, healing, provision, and joy to a hurting and broken world, to illuminate the night with the light of salvation, to pour out water on the parched desert of a broken land, and one day the Messiah will arrive to heal not only the brokenness of the world, but our own brokenness as well. And so it's no wonder then that the news of Jesus' birth was so electrifying too, to think here could be the long-awaited king who is going to set things right. One of the most beautiful and poetic declarations of this news is found at the opening of John's biography of Jesus. In it, John writes that Jesus was the word made flesh and that in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome the light. Here's the one who will turn all of our night to day, all of our morning to joy. But what did that really end up meaning for those first century people of God? And what does it mean for us right now? Because if we're honest, when we look around at the state of affairs, uh, we see that the world is still a very dark place. Looking back, what we want John to have said in his gospel is, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has been utterly overcome. The light has shone so brightly that the darkness is no more. But that's not exactly the way things wound up. It's still not the way things are. Not yet, anyway. Because, yes, Advent is about God pulling us up and out of the shell hole of our, of our despair. In flesh and blood, Jesus has reached out his hand to take hold of us. But also, all around us, the war rages on. The darkness presses in and threatens to overcome us. The beauty, though, is that now we're not alone. Advent is also about remembering that Jesus, God in the flesh, 
stands beside us in the middle of the raging war. He is the light of all mankind, and the darkness, though it threatens and beats and fights against it, cannot overcome the light. And Jesus made this bold declaration. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And now, through the spirit of Jesus, our brokenness has been turned into new life. We have the light of life within us, and in him, we are now called to be the light of life to the world. You are the light of the world, Jesus says to his followers in Matthew 5. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Advent is a time of waiting and remembering in hope, remembering that we have been given new life, and we now stand beside our King and hold forth our candle in the midst of the darkness of this world. The Advent candle that we uh, lit last week represents hope, the hope that we would uh, hold on to as we remember we're in this season of waiting, a season of Advent. The Messiah has come, and he will come again. His kingdom has broken into and is breaking into the darkness. We live in the hope that when he returns, he will fully set all wrongs right. He will put an end to pain, uh, violence, and sin, and he will put an end to death itself. And this hope of our returning king leads us to joy, which is what tonight's Advent candle represents. Though the world around us may still lay in darkness, we boldly hold forth our candle of joy as an act of defiance in the face of the broken ways of this world. And this joy gives us strength to remain steadfast as we continue to wait, even in the face of suffering and sorrow and the trials of this life. As the prophet Nehemiah said, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In Advent, though the long winter seems never to break, we lift up our candles of joy and say the darkness has not overcome the light. So to end tonight, I would like to invite us, all of us, to consider what it means to take these words from the past and imbibe them into our present and our future as a people, as individuals, as a family, and as humanity. Think of those words in Isaiah, justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for the light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice, but find none. For deliverance, but it is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. To sit in those ancient words, to imbibe them into our present and our future, is not to somehow 
you know, brush the reality of our salvation aside, the fact that we've been forgiven and healed and restored, that God sees us like he sees Jesus as perfect and without blemish. Yes, all those things theologically, scripturally are very, very true. But what does it mean for those things to be true? What did that cost God? What does it mean that God loves us enough to do those things? We don't remember those words at Advent to stew in self-defeat. We don't remember them to despair, but to reckon with a terrible reality all human beings must face so that we can actually celebrate Christmas together. Because if God came to us in the darkness of the human condition, then the story does not end in tragedy. We are, like the people of God thousands of years ago, still awaiting ultimate redemption, and we believe in that redemption because of Christmas, because God came to save us once, and so we believe he will come to save us again. And we are a people in desperate need of saving. So let's pray and ask God's Spirit to prepare our hearts to welcome Jesus at Christmas. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.